Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, guys, we are rewinding all the way back to November the 25th, 2008. Again, not quite 10 years ago, about nine and a half years ago. This was episode 99, right on the edge of that first 100 episodes, right? And it was called Container Gardening for the Urban Survivalist. You know, this week I am up in uh, New Hampshire. If you're listening to this uh, as it was published, I'm probably getting on an airplane right about now to head there. And my breakout session up there is going to be on aquaponics. And aquaponics, I think, is one of the greatest and best ways to grow food that there is. But I also believe in getting something done. Getting something done. And when I was asked to go speak at Liberty Forum, I had expected to, you know, to go up there and do a presentation uh, and, and a maybe a, a panel discussion. And well, you can do a panel discussion, a presentation that's our keynote intro, to, and you're going to do a breakout session and a mini session to promote that. So it left me with, okay, well, I don't want to sit there and tell people about, you know, straight up liberty and freedom twice when you know the majority of what they're going to hear is that message at something like Liberty Forum. I want to give them something concrete that they can do, that they can go home and say, I'm going to take this, I'm going to add this to my life, and it will increase my personal freedom. So I thought about all of the different methods of food production. I think it's one of the things that we most need to get back into the, the homes of Americans, is producing your own food. And since I've done a lot of work lately with aquaponics and it's an interesting subject, it's what I decided to talk about. But the real reason I decided to talk about it is because it produces food. And there's an interesting thing going on right now that kind of, you know, merges with this. I have this outdoor kitchen being installed outside of my property, and the majority of the workers are Hispanic. Legal status, I don't know, and since they work for a living, I don't care, right? I mean, that's the way I look at it. But... Uh, a lot of them are very fluent in English. You can tell they've been here a long time. Some of them, you know, they, 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 they're a little bit more of a broken English type thing. Um, and the guy that's doing the, that's my general contractor, he's doing a really good job of, like, instead of trying to do everything, he's got subs, he gets a price, he puts a markup on it, boom, sub comes in, leaves. So I'm getting exposure to a lot of different people right now. And, again, especially Texas, many people in the building construction trades are of Hispanic descent. And many of them are very, you know, within one, two generations of coming to America. Much like my grandparents were. My grandparents came here as children from the Ukraine, actually by way of, uh, of Romania. Uh, it's kind of a weird thing, but see, they came from a place where you didn't just get everything you expected to get at a grocery store. Like, you didn't always have money. You didn't always have the ability. They knew that food didn't come coated in plastic. And they, they planted this seed in me of growing my own food. We always did that. And today, when I talk to people about it, people think it's interesting, but they don't really grab onto it. Every single one of these, these gentlemen that have been doing this work that I've taken the time to talk to, get to know a little bit, and showed them like our ducks, showed them our aquaponics system, they are not just interested. They are extremely interested and even excited about it. Because since these guys are builders... When they look at something like aquaponics and you show them how it builds, they know exactly how it works. They're like, oh, I could do that, right? And it's because they're in a mindset 
that we've lost in America, which is the value of being able to take care of ourselves is greater than our paycheck. See, that's the problem. Americans have not... Now, I know there's the, there's the segment that we make fun of on YouTube all the time, uh, you know, that Waters World goes out and trolls and stuff like that, that are just brain-dead simpletons. I know that segment exists. You know what? That segment existed when our founders fought for the freedom of this country. There just wasn't YouTube and digital cameras to, to make them evident everywhere. There's always been simpletons and idiots and morons in society. That will always be the case. The majority of Americans today do work hard, whether they're anywhere from low, lower class, you know, right at the edge of trying to break into the middle class, all the way up to the affluent. They work their asses off. And in general, in general, they behave in what they believe to be a responsible manner. But what we did is we took the concept of behaving in a responsible manner, meaning making sure you had systems that provided what you need for your family, And we replaced it with, if you work for a living and earn a paycheck that buys you what you're supposed to have, that's responsible. And, and I'm not going to say that's irresponsible. I'm saying it is one component to being a responsible grown-up adult in the world. Because the responsible person can see into the future, not from the standpoint of clairvoyance, but in a what-if scenario. So what if I lost my job? Well, then the entire system, if it's built only on employment, just broke down. And now I can't be responsible, but it's okay, I'll get unemployment. But most people haven't even planned, well, if we had to live on a percentage of our income versus the income we have, how long could we do that? They haven't even th thought about it. Because it's not, and this is why, it's not comfortable to think about it. Especially when you've done nothing You're spending all your money and you're in debt and you're barely saving anything except the two or three piddly percent that are going into your 401k. And the only reason you've been able to do that, because you haven't developed the discipline to save your own money, is that your employer talked you into signing up for it because some financial liar came in and told you to make you a millionaire. And at least that's there for you. But your debt probably outweighs it. And if you carry both to retirement, you're going to be at a point where you, you have as much money as you owe, if you're lucky. And that's just one piece of it. But if we start asking ourselves, well, what would we do if one of the big things we have to think about is the old cliche. What, what, what have men always said about their role as heads of families? I have to keep a roof overhead and food on the table. And there's a reason those are the two big things. If you can keep a family in a home, if you can make sure they don't get thrown out, and you can keep them fed, you can get through almost anything else. Well, the only solution to the home thing is not to overbuy, buy smart, save money, and pay down your mortgage. Right? That's it. I mean, there's no, you know, the days of being able to just go off in the wilderness and put up a cabin are, are, are largely lost. And if you want to do that today, you can, but you're still looking at buying land and what have you. Um, and, and there's a lot of things in society that make you know that remote living not appealing to many people because there's a lot of good in our society. All of this technology, all of these things we've built are actually good things when properly used. When people like you know push away technology or say it's not we should have this, we should have it, it's the same argument that people that want gun control use. Well, look at guns are used for these bad things, so we should have guns. We well, could see the stupidity 
in that argument. So you need to see the stupidity in the whole, you know, we need to get rid of technology and stuff like that to some people, you know. There's no reason to own a GPS, for instance, you know, in the survival community. Some people say that. Well, I, I think they actually make our lives better. So we, we have a limit to what we can do from a standpoint of being able to keep the roof overhead. But we have an almost limitless potential to make good on the other end of it with put food on the table. With the dink pantry, with copy canning and things like that while times are good, with learning to do food preservation and producing and foraging some of our own food, we can make sure that we can keep bellies full. And again, the formula for families to get through things and be able to figure out what to do next. How is dad going to get a new job? How is mom going to get a new job? How are we going to rearrange things? Are we going to switch this up? and do Whatever it is, if we can keep everybody together, Everybody united in the desire to be together, under a roof, and fed, then we can get through things. Now, I've said this before, but survival without survival of the family isn't that great a thing, is it? And one of the things that has just absolutely gutted our country is the divorce rate. It really is. If you look at the divorce rate between now and just even 35, 40 years ago, It's massive. I think in some ways there is some good there because there are people who used to stay together that really were toxic for each other. But it's gotten to be where, well, people are getting married with the, the opinion of, you know, if it doesn't work out, we'll just get a divorce. I mean, that has caused such damage to our, you know, everybody wants the single mother to be a hero. Well, the reason the single mother is a hero in the minds of some is because it's so damn hard. So maybe we, we shouldn't idolize it and want more of them. Keeping families together. Roof on the roof overhead, food on the table. Well, half of that equation can be done to a great deal by beginning to produce some of your own food. It causes a switch in mentality. It causes a economic return, which can be reinvested to making sure the roof stays over the head, for instance. It creates a skill set within the family of cultivation, harvesting, cooking, storage, So when I was going to go away this week, I thought, let's make sure some of the content that I have has to do with food production. So I looked way back in the archives and said, this is, this is great, container gardening. Because this is the thing, like I say anybody can do aquaponics, and I believe that, but this is the thing that anybody can freaking do. You can go out and find people that threw away five-gallon buckets, drill a couple holes in one, stick it inside the other, and make a, a, a self-watering container and grow tomatoes on a patio porch. There is no one anywhere that can't grow something in a container. I don't care if it's fresh herbs. You can do this. And I have learned in this 10-year walk, as your host of this podcast, that the number one way to get people on the track of doing things in their lives is get them to take N- Action. It almost doesn't matter what it is. If they'll do the, the economic thing and start out with just a spending journal and realize what they're spending, all of a sudden they're on a walk and they, their, their growth is limitless. If they'll grow some basil and, and thyme in, in, in a pot on their patio and put that in their food and taste it and realize the difference in the quality of the food, they're on a path. And they'll probably bring multiple other things. And nobody's path will look the same and it shouldn't because we're all advancing toward liberty 
And what I told you in the earlier uh, throwback show this week was my version of liberty and your version of liberty look different or they're not liberty. So it doesn't matter what first step you take. It just matters that you take that first step. That's why I chose today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Here we go back to November 25th, 2008, episode 99, Container Gardening for the Urban Survivalist. Which is growing some of your own food and setting a goal for yourself. You know, and if you're starting from zero, if you're, if you're not growing anything, if you've never really grown anything in the past, start out with a simple goal. Because when you achieve a goal, it gives you the encouragement to keep going. So start out with a goal of, I'm going to figure out exactly how much produce I use. I'm going to, you know, write it all down. Just take a, you know, take that journal. I've told you to do a spending journal. Take the same little notebook. If you don't, haven't done that one, you know, get a little notebook. You can buy them for 33 cents or something at, you know, the drugstore. And just every day, write down everything that you eat that could be grown. Whether you can grow, if it's an orange, if it's an apple, and you can't grow oranges and apples because of where you live, don't worry about it. Still write it down. It's produce. So anything that's grown that you consume, your family consumes, get a volume. How much produce that you use. All right? And then figure out how you could replace 10%. Just make it easier. 5% of that with stuff that you grow yourself. You could probably do 5% of your produce just with container gardening alone, which is what we're going to talk about mostly today. And see if you can do it. And if 5% is doable, then so is 10. You just double what you're already doing. And if you start slow, you'll get encouraged and you won't get overwhelmed. And you'll be able to move on from there. Alright? As we go into this, I want to talk about, real quick though, this thing that came up about raised bed gardening. Because some things came up in my head when I started thinking about using these, this product, which is kind of an ugly product that sits in every home improvement center in America, that I really never thought about using for a raised bed before, but some cool ideas came up with it. And it's the humble cinder block. You've probably seen these. They look like a concrete block, but they're made out of burn ash cinders. Uh, they're about 8 inches long, or 8 inches high by 16 inches long by 8 inches deep. Alright? They have two holes in them. You should know what I'm talking about. If not, God help you, I'll place a link to a picture of a cinder block on the site if you've never seen one. I would guess 99.9% of people know what the hell a cinder block is. Well, a guy posted on the forum that these things were running for 79 or 89 cents. I don't remember what the number was of piece at Home Depot in his area. And I said, you know, that might make a really good raised bed material. Here's why. Um, one, uh, with 16 inches in length, uh, you could build a 4x8, uh, which is kind of a standard size for a raised bed, uh, raised bed with them with, what was it, 6 and 3 and 3, 9, 12 of them, right? And there, or maybe it was 18. I don't remember what the number was. I'm not real good at math in my head while I'm driving. But anyway, I came up with a number that was about 15 bucks in costs, okay, material costs, to build a single raised bed out of cinder blocks, which you'll pay more for the dirt you put in the bed than the 15 bucks to make it. Certainly it'll cost less than what I've been using, which are traditional landscaping timbers and kind of a log cabin shape and, and concept. So they're affordable. The next thing I said is, well, but these things are ugly, right? I mean, the cinder block's pretty ugly. But painted, you can make them look however you want, including if you want to get artistic, putting a border on them or something like that. I mean, that's something my wife would probably do. I would. I just paint them one color or another. So you can paint them to, to uh, take, you know, the aesthetics up a level. 
And then the other thing that was really cool about them is if you lived in a place where it was always really hot, you could paint them kind of a, a, a light color that would be reflective and help keep the soil temperatures down. If you lived in a place where you needed to warm the ground, you could paint them a dark color like a brown or even a black, and they would become kind of a solar sink and bring more heat to bear on your soil. So they had that kind of flexibility as well. But the thing that really got me, and I just don't know why, I've never really thought about this before. Each cinder block has two little mini pots in it, so to speak. Those holes. If you fill those holes with dirt, you can surround the edges of your, your beds with additional plants. Some of the things you might want to plant in there, we've talked about companion planting. Well, mint. Right? You plant mint in there, and it's very good at repelling certain you know, insect pests. It's also very good at attracting certain little wasps and things that are beneficials that prey upon the bad insects. problem is you put mint in your garden, it's invasive, it starts to spread, and next thing you know, it takes over the whole garden. But if you put it inside, you know, a couple cavities in different spots around your bed, you get the mint, you can use the mint, you get the smell of the mint, you get the attraction of the beneficial insects, you get the repellent nature, and it can't spread, because even mint's not invasive enough to crawl through the sidewalls of a piece of cinder block, all right? So that would be one cool advantage. Other things you could plant there would be some of your edible flowers and some of your beneficial companion planting flowers, marigolds, nasturtiums, and things like that, chrysanthemums, etc. All right. Some of these should actually be planted in a bed because, like chrysanthemums, the, the, the roots themselves kill the bad nematodes. But you, you get my point. You could use these areas. It would also allow you to use the repellent nature of things like garlic and onion around your legumes. Onions can be planted with just about everything, but one thing they should never be planted with are peas and beans. So if you had a little raised bed with pole beans or pole peas or something like that, snow peas in it, you could plant a few onions in these little cavities, get the, the odor around there without having the negative effect that they have each other when they're planted in common soil because they'd be separated by the barrier of the raised bed block. So it's just really a cool idea. And you think of some other things that are just natural to plant in there. Onions are great, one in each one beets, one in each one. Uh, you could plant some of your salad greens, especially for baby microgreens. You could continuously sow a succession crop. It's just a really cool idea. Again, I don't know why I've never really considered it before, uh, but if you're going to do any raised bed building, they're a building material to consider. And again, remember that ugly gray, gray color is you know $5 worth of a pint of your favorite color of paint from going away. So, so that's kind of my little raised bed idea. Now with container gardening. This is my rule with container gardening. If I can find a place to put it, if it'll hold dirt, and if I can put some drain holes in the bottom of it, and it's big enough to grow something in, I'll plant it in. I don't care if it's a five-gallon bucket. I don't care if it's an unused piece of uh, Sterilite or, or Tupperware or, 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 or something like that. Um, I really don't care how it looks, how aesthetically pleasing it is. Uh, if I can find it, fill it with dirt, and shove it in my greenhouse or on a windowsill, I'll grow something in it. Uh, so you do, what I'm, guess, I guess I'm getting at here is you don't need to necessarily have you know proper garden potting. Uh, now, if you're doing it on your patio or something like that, which a lot of people will do, then of course you want it to be aesthetically pleasing. But if you're setting up shelves in a greenhouse, folks, you know use whatever you can find. Keep your cost down. Buy those nice pots for the area where you're going to be displaying your plantings. Some of the things that I really think that you can easily grow in containers that are good first steps for people. 
Number one, if you like radishes, all right, you can put a seed in your pot and 25 days later have fresh radishes. Now, this is the bad part for me. I don't really enjoy radishes, but they're the fastest growing crop out there. And you can grow, you know, the best way to do radishes since they grow so fast is you, you know, I don't know how many radishes anybody else would eat. It's hard for me to gauge since I don't like them, but, you know, if you use them occasionally for salad, you can get two flower pots. Plant one, ten days later, plant the next one. Harvest out of that first pot as you need them. As soon as it's empty, start reseeding. And it seems to me like you could have radishes with even limited light for growing and a little bit of warmth because they, they're a cold weather crop from containers. You can provide yourself radishes all year round. Uh, even with a minimal growth light. We talked about growth lights in the, in the past. I won't go much into that today. I'll just say if you want to grow inside, you need lighting that provides full UV spectrum. That does not mean that all fluorescent lighting will work. You have to buy specific lighting. So you might want to go back and I'll put a link to that other show in the show notes for this, this podcast uh, at thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can go listen to that if you want more on growth lights. But again, full UV spectrum, you'll be fine. Good sunny window, you'll be fine. I'm unfortunate with my home that None of my windows really get hit heavily with the sun, especially in wintertime, so I have to use growth lighting to grow anything inside. It's why I went to a greenhouse, which we'll talk about in a second as well. Another great crop to grow in containers is greens, and especially for kind of the micro or baby greens that you use in mixed greens for a salad. And I'm talking about things like Swiss chard, instead of letting it grow large, you cut it when it's small, lettuce, romaine, um, oak leaf lettuce, butter head lettuce, all of these lettuces can be grown, and once they're three or four inches high, you can go ahead and cut them, and they'll usually come back and produce at least one more time, and many of them will come back even a third time before you'll have to start over. So with a few pots uh, and some various different mixed greens, and you can plant them very close together and get a lot of production out of a limited area as long as you are going to be cutting them when they're small. Uh, some of the other little things that work great is greens, spinach, uh, beets, especially bull's, red, uh, bull's blood red beets are a wonderful uh, uh, addition to a salad green mix. And one of the best pots that I've found for growing this type of uh, stuff, and remember, I'll grow in anything, but if you want it to be displayed in a window or something, or these simple window boxes, Walmart has these ones that I've been using. They sell for about 7 bucks. Of course, Walmart's stupid and liquidates everything related to gardening in winter, so you'll have to see if maybe they have a few laying around for clearance. Uh, but they're various lengths. They're plastic. I think they come in like a tan, a green, and some other colors. And I buy the green ones. But they're designed so that the bottom has like a false tray, and you can actually fill it from the side and water from the bottom. I've been very, very pleased with these pots, and because they're a long type of pot, you can fit, if you're growing baby greens, kind of two rows of baby greens all the way along between the two of them, and uh, you can you know, you know, can grow a lot of greens in three or four of these little pots. So if nothing else, you could do that. And if all you did out of that was grow yourself, let's say four of those pots, and let's say that Every week, once they started to produce, you completely harvested one of those pots, let it come back for a second, harvested it a second time, right, and then replanted it. I just kept rotating that. And every week, you were planting one pot, and you were harvesting from a, from a fourth, all right? And the two in the middle were in intermediate stages. And you continuously did that. That one 
like a, a long one, one of the longer boxes, will grow you enough for at least one salad for a family of four. So, if you're now providing your family one salad a week from these four little containers and you're growing greens that are so fresh, and you got to think about the other benefits here. Not only are you creating some level of independence, not only are you learning what grows and what your family will eat and what your family likes. When it's time to make the salad, go to the windowsill, go to your greenhouse, go to wherever you keep this box, bring it into the kitchen, put it right on the counter. Sit there with a pair of shears and cut the salad from the ground to rinsed to the salad bowl to the plate that fast. So I think it's really, you know, kind of a real healthy, advantageous thing that you can do. Another thing that you can grow in in containers that a lot of people don't think about are onions. And, you know, I think the reason people don't think about growing onions in, 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 uh, in pots is because they do so well in the ground. But if you don't have that option, you know, you can grow onions in fairly large flower pots. A lot of times you can companion plant an onion. You know, we have some big flower pots with marigolds that grow in them. And we'll just put one or two onions in each pot, and they'll grow right there with the marigolds. There's no problem. They interact well with each other. The onion takes very little surface base up, and the marigold roots just kind of grow right around the onion, and you can just pull the onion out toward the end of the year. The thing about onions is some people use huge bags of onions. If you're like my family, we use two or three onions a week. Well, that's easy to replace with gardening just from dropping a couple onion sets of various different kinds of onions in some of your flower pots that you're growing other things in. Or even even in the ground. I mean, the thing about onions is they'll damn near grow anywhere, okay? So, you know, if you have some garden beds or something that are mostly growing flowers and stuff, throw an onion here, and onion there. They'll help repel pests. And whenever you need an onion, you just go pick one. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really so ridiculously easy. You wonder why people don't do it. Another, you know, crop that does the exact same thing, the exact same way, is garlic. All right? You could do the same thing with garlic, and both of them are kind of slow to go to seed, so you can kind of leave them there a long time before you pull them. And if they start to get ready to go to seed, you got to pull them. But they both store well even without refrigeration. So you can kind of, like, plant them at different times, keep them coming in, pick them whenever you need them, and it's like having a little produce section right outside. So just with, again, if you'll eat radishes, radishes, greens, onions, and garlic, you can start to make a dent right away. Now, Container gardening is actually a lot more, has a lot more potential to produce more things than people realize. I purchased a little greenhouse from a company called Springhouse. It's an 8 foot by 8 foot by 6 foot tall greenhouse made out of this this material that I just can't get over the quality of. It's it's a very thick, heavy, uh, kind of translucent material. does a very good job of bouncing the light around inside so every part of it gets good uh, good lighting and, and does a real good job of growing uh, the food. And let me give you an idea of some of the things that I'm growing in there that you wouldn't think of as something you could grow in a greenhouse. I decided that my family would have fresh green beans in the middle of winter from our own production this year, which is impossible in Texas. It doesn't get super cold here, but it gets way too cold for beans to germinate, let alone survive. What I have is six one-gallon pots, and in them I've placed three beans each, let them come up, and I've killed off the, the weakest of the three in each pot, and I've hung wires from the top of the greenhouse in the back center of it, and each pot has two wires where the beans can crawl up to the top 
of the greenhouse. When they reach the six foot height, which the type of beans I plant, it usually don't grow much more than six feet high anyway, but when they reach that pinnacle, I'll just pinch the top off to encourage production, and I'll be able to pick green beans. As soon as they start to look like they're about done with being able to be harvested, I'll just get six new pots, I'll start some new beans, and by the time they're high enough to need to be trained onto those wires, I'll do away with the old ones, pick what's left of the beans, and begin the process all over again. By the time the second one's come in, I'll be ready to plant them in the ground. Pretty cool in a greenhouse. Not hard. The beans don't require a lot of dirt. Now, here's another thing. Those bean stalks will produce a lot of nitrogen in that soil. When I take the stalks down, I'll chop them up, mix them with the soil, and I'll throw that into my compost bin. It'll boost the nitrogen of my compost. How cool is that? So that's like a full cycle there from growing some beans in a greenhouse, and that can be done with a container. And a lot of you folks that are in places where you're renting a house, a greenhouse may be a great addition for you, especially if you use one like I'm talking about, because I can take it down and move it wherever I go. So that's another uh, little idea for you. I want you to think creatively, too. Get outside of the box, as they say. Um, I was just at Lowe's a few weeks ago, and I saw they had all of the remaining fruit trees on sale for 75% off. They had these patio peaches that were normally selling for like 30 bucks, which meant they were like $12 or something like that. And I'm like, that's really inexpensive for a peach tree, and I'd like some more peach trees, because as I've told you, I don't have enough peach production, and the squirrels ate all my peaches this year. Um, But I'm like, well, you know, my plan is I want to move away from here at some point. I want to go up to my homestead in Arkansas. And everything that I plant permanently here that's like a tree or a bush, that will be passed on to a new landowner. And I'm not stingy or greedy. I'm willing to do that. It helps to resell value of the house, et cetera. No problem. I'm going to add another peach tree this year anyway. But if I'm putting all this effort in, I'd like to be able to take something with me. Well, I looked, and they had patio peaches, these little miniature dwarf peach trees. And I went, well, that's perfect. So I picked them up, and they're dormant now because it's winter and all their leaves are off, but and I just want to keep watering them and, and, and take care of them through the winter so they don't freeze to death uh, and have their roots damaged or anything. And then in the springtime, when they get ready to start budding, I'm going to plant them in two big, pretty deck boxes, set them on my back deck, and I'll take care of them for the next year or two, and they'll get bigger and they'll be producing. And even a dwarf tree gets a lot bigger bigger once you take it out of a container and put it in the ground. So when we're ready to relocate, we'll transport those two little dwarf trees up to Arkansas. We'll plant them in the ground where they can continue to put down roots, grow bigger, and they'll produce for us for years and years and years. But that is container gardening. And you can have one of these little dwarf peach trees, and most of them are self-fertile. They don't need a second one for a pollinator. I bought them because they were cheap, and that's how many they had left that looked like they were going to be in good shape. If they had four that looked like they were going to be in good shape, I probably would have bought all four of them at that price. Uh, but I bought two mostly for, you know, aesthetically, it'll look nice to have one on one end of the deck, one on the other end of the deck, and nice big deck boxes. Right? So, again, container gardening, easy to do, creative, produces peaches, and it's a type of permaculture, meaning that it will produce year after year after year after year. And once I get them in the ground and take care of them for about a year in the ground, and they put roots deep enough down, you know, you throw some compost around them once in a while for fertilizing, maybe give them a little bit of water when it's really a drought. But basically, trees will take care of themselves. So that's another uh, creative little form of container gardening that you can consider. Uh, Along the same notes, there's also a product called a Colomar apple. 
And these are an apple tree that basically have no branches. They go straight up like a stick, and apples form right off their core. Um, you, you, I think you need two varieties of them. I think they require one variety to pollinate the other variety. There's like three varieties that this uh, place sells. I can't think of the name. I'll put a link to their, their website. Uh, it's a nursery, and the na- their name just escapes me now, that sells these. And I'm going to probably pick up a couple of those and container garden those and relocate them as well. Because uh, it's just really, they, first of all, they're a cool-looking tree. They're not going to produce a huge amount of apples, but you're going to have some fresh apple production. And, again, they can be done in container gardening. So that's, that's another really cool option. Now, here's another one I've talked about before. Now, this would be difficult. Uh, in fact, your, your, your landlords would probably ask you what you're doing if you try to do this on a porch. But if you rent a home, or if you own a home and you just want an easy way to grow potatoes, try tire stack potatoes. And I've heard people worry that maybe the tires will have some kind of chemicals or what have you. Tires, folks, the problem with a tire is it almost can't break down. You bury a tire for 100 years, you dig it up, and it pretty much looks like it did the day that you buried it. They're filthy, dirty. A tire is, tire dirt is the hard, if you've ever worked on tires, I used to break down tires. Uh, my dad owned a tire shop when I was growing up in Jacksonville, Florida, and I would go down there and work for him, and you get dirtier than, the only thing I've ever seen that's worse than tire dirt is coal dirt. Um, so you want to scrub your tires just so you don't get dirty, but once they're scrubbed, folks, I mean, you have no chemical worries from a tire, trust me. And and what you do with these tires is you set a tire on the ground and if you want to like really make your life easy, put a piece of plywood down first. All right. In fact, here, if you really, really, really want to do something cool, put down a layer of straw and compost. All right. Put down uh, and wet it. Wet it really good. Put down a layer of plywood and then put your first uh, tire on top of it. And then fill that tire with good, loamy, dirt, soil, a little bit of compost, and plant your seed potatoes. As they start to grow, keep adding dirt to the tire until until there's only a little bit of the potato plant sticking out of the tire. And then once that, you know, you fill that tire completely, add a second tire, do it again, and keep training the potato vine up the tires. So you get to about four. I've seen people go as high as five tires. I've seen better production, though, from four uh, with a good size, full size car tire, not these little donuts, right? And uh, once you get it that high, just keep watering it, take good care of the plant, wait till the top of the potato naturally dies off. That'll be your clue to start pulling potatoes out. And all you do is unstack your tires. Uh, you know, and pull your potatoes out of your dirt. There's no digging involved. You can take that dirt, recycle it, reuse it again, add some organic matter to it, add it to your raised beds, do whatever you like with it. Now, here's the cool part. Remember the, that layer of straw and leaves and compost that you put underneath uh, the piece of plywood you put down? You lift that up. And underneath there will be very rich, broken-down compost that you can use to add to your other containers. Uh, It won't be a huge amount, but it will be a good amount there because that wet, protected area with all that organic matter is going to attract worms. It's going to retain moisture every time it rains. A piece of plywood is probably going to be scrap by now. Maybe you can get one more run out of it using it for something like that. Uh, But you don't really care because that organic matter is going to be amazing because it's going to attract so many worms, and it's going to be full of worm castings. So as you 
you take it and you add it to your other garden spots, you're going to be spreading worm castings and spreading the population of worms in your garden. So it's really cool how all this stuff starts to work together. And I know that some, some of you guys that tune in, you're not the biggest on these garden shows, but I keep saying this. That when it comes to survival, we have three main needs. They teach you this in any survival school. Shelter, food, and water. And food's the one you can do without the longest, but you can't do without it. Food's the one that makes you do stupid things, too. Odds are, in our society, no matter how bad things get, one way or another, you'll be able to find water, unless you're dealing with a flood situation where the water's been contaminated. But there's always a way to get your hands on water. Shelter, you know, hey, man, you know, that can be a tough one if you get evicted from your house and you're living in the streets, I guess. But for most of us, shelter's kind of something we can we can come up with, even if it's a tent. Food, you got to have. You go long enough without food, it's simple. You die. All right? And food is the main thing that makes us get up and go to work every day. We have to put food on the table. How many times have you heard a working man say that? I've got to put food on the table. That's my primary concern. I've got to feed my family. Right? There's a reason, and when that guy says that, he also means I've got to keep a roof over their head, I've got to pay for their ballet lessons or their you know, football stuff or whatever it is. But there's a reason that even when we're talking about these other things, that the, 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 the euphemism or colloquialism or cliche or whatever you want to call it is I've got to put food on the table, I've got to feed my family. Because intrinsically we know that's what it's really all about. Well, when you start gardening, you take not just a storage mentality of, I'm going to store rice, beans, pastas, other things that don't spoil, and I think you should do that. We've done shows on that. I'll probably do another one on it very soon because it's been a while since we have. All right? But now you get production capacity because no matter how much you store, eventually it will run out. When you can produce food, you leverage your stored food. So now you take something like a stored pasta, you take fresh tomatoes and peppers, all right, and a can of a little tiny can of tomato paste, which is a lot easier to store than a great big can of peppers and a great big can of tomatoes. And you mix those together with a fresh onion you pull out of a flower pot. Now you're cooking home style pasta, right, with peppers and tomatoes and garlic and onion that you grow. So you're taking stored and fresh ingredients and combining them together, which means your stored food will last longer. So six months' supply of stored food with the right gardening and adjunctive attitude could turn into a year to a year and a half supply by cutting it and spreading it across the other things that you're growing. So that's why I think it's so important. That's why I think container gardening, if you cannot garden yet, or you just don't have time to do beds yet, or you only have one bed and you don't really have time to add another one, containers are a great way to spread things around. And again, it's also very easy to start taking that flower pot that's sitting there anyway, and instead of planting, you know, some kind of, you know, like flowers that are actually toxic, plant a flower you can eat. Some of the flowers you can eat are nasturtiums, marigolds, violets, pansies are edible, believe it or not. Right now, everybody's planting pansies because they're winter hardy. The petals are beautiful in a salad, all right? Plant borage. It's, a, it's a, an herb that has these little blue uh, flowers that taste like cucumbers. So when you can't grow cucumbers, you can throw those into a salad and get the flavor of a cucumber. And trust me, folks, I've, I've given people salad with borage flowers in it. And they've gone, where's the cucumbers I keep tasting? 
that's how that's just you know how they taste. It's how they smell. They're not a very attractive plant, so they're probably not for your display. It's kind of a, a hairy, thorny-looking, big leaf, kind of an ugly plant. Uh, but it's just another option. And uh, the big thing is to be creative. Start looking around and go, where's a sunny spot that I can put a flower pot, right? And a lot of you you guys that live in the south, even when it gets cold at night, you can put your plants out during the day when they're hit by the sun and bring them in at night. And that's another advantage the container system has. Last night I didn't think it was going to get that cold. I didn't put out my frost blankets. I have broccoli and lettuce in the ground. The lettuce looks okay. Half of the broccoli looks fine. Half of it had frost on it. And I don't really understand what happened last night, folks. I'm talking two plants, eight inches apart. One leaf is clean, dry, no problems. The plant next to it had condensation form on it that froze. I don't know if some of those are going to make it uh, if they were in containers. Broccoli is kind of a tough thing for containers, but you can do it. Uh, I would have just been able to bring them in last night. Um, so that's one of the other advantages of container gardening, that you can bring them in when your temperatures are going to decline, and you can put them out in the sun at midday. And a lot of times, even if the temperature of the air is near freezing, when you put something in the sun, it warms. All right, and it'll do okay, especially if it's a bit winter hardy. And things like your greens, folks, um, they can handle you know freezing temperatures as long as you don't overwater them. If you take the step of, of, of using a greenhouse, you can get really creative what you can grow. Some of the other things I'm growing in my greenhouse uh, this, this winter include peppers. Uh, I'm growing these smaller little sweet pickle peppers. And the thing that most people don't realize about peppers, peppers are actually a perennial. And what I mean by that is if you live in a climate where it doesn't get cold enough for them to die... They'll stay for years. You can have basically a pepper bush instead of a plant that will continue to produce over and over and over again. And they'll produce throughout the season. Once you clean all the peppers off, the temperatures get right. They'll blossom and they'll produce three or four times a season. Um, So... When you take and you start a pepper this time of year, you get it producing in January and February in your greenhouse, and you're picking peppers, you just keep it going. And then when you go to plant your peppers in the ground, instead of planting these little bitty plants that have to suffer through the initial summer heat and they don't have anything built up yet, you're putting these big, heavy, stocky, already producing plants into the ground. Now, you're going to want to harden them off a little bit before you put them in the ground, uh, but that's just another example of how you take the two situations, container gardening and producing from a container garden and then moving it into the ground and making a full cycle out of it. Another thing that I'm growing in my greenhouse this year are some heirloom tomatoes, uh, brandy wines, which generally that's a summer tomato. I believe I can have enough heat in my greenhouse to, uh, to, to have those grow well. And if nothing else, I'll have really big plants to put in the ground come springtime. Uh, but I do think I'll get some production off of them. I'm even growing one zucchini squash bush just to see what I can do with that. Now, they're a very large plant, but I think it'll be all right in the situation in the way that I'm doing it. I'm growing um, endive, uh, which is another great salad green. I'm growing beets, and I'm growing beets just for the greens. Uh, I'm growing Swiss chard in one of those long window boxes. I'm growing the, the, the kind that's multicolored, and I'll probably be harvesting that very young. These are just some of the things that I'm growing right now while everybody else is going, well, I can't garden until, you know, next spring. Because it's going to get too cold and anything I put in the ground is going to die. Uh, so I've got stuff growing in the ground. I've got stuff growing in containers 
in the home. I've got stuff in containers in the greenhouse. And the reason I tell you this is not so you'll try to do everything I'm doing. But just listen to it and go, well, that's one thing that I could start with. And start with something. I don't care if it's a tire, you know, the tire thing full of potatoes. Not the time of year to do that. It's too cold for that right now. But you can start that pretty early in the spring, folks, because especially you want to put that in a nice warm area, and the tires being black will be a heat sink, and they'll warm the ground really well. The problem is since it's above ground, it also tends to cool a lot faster. Uh, but they're also easy to cover. So as long as you're kind of getting towards springtime, the days are starting to get a little bit longer, uh, you can go ahead and start that project. Uh, get three or four window boxes, start growing greens inside the house. Let, you know, just go out and get a lettuce mix, a nice lettuce mix. Buy good quality seeds. Uh, don't buy cheap seeds that have been laying around the store shelves if you can find them. You know, right now, if you find seeds in a store, they've probably laid there a long time. They haven't been taken care of. They've been through temperature swings. Go ahead and order some from a good supplier. High Mowing is uh, one of the places I buy more organic seeds from. Excellent quality seed. Um, but just about all the catalog companies are, are good providers. And I'll also put a link. There's a uh, post I did in the forum with, I think I have 24 different seed catalogs you can request for free in there. And, and I have it linked to where you don't, you go straight to the form and fill it out. And uh, with some of the toolbars and stuff, you can preload it to drop your address in. And you can probably request these 24 seed catalogs in, I don't know, 10 minutes. Uh, and some of them are really beautiful and really uh, give you a lot of additional information and give you a lot of ideas is about what you can do. So I hope today's show has been good. I hope it's giving you practical things that you can do. I hope it started moved, moving you toward, uh, you know, I could do that. I'll go buy some onion sets and throw them in my flower pots. Whatever. Just take the first step. You know, just take the first step. Because the first time you pick up an onion, chop it up, and, and saute it, even when you mix in store-bought food and go, hey, I grew the onion, it starts to empower you. And as you start to become empowered, you start to realize how much more you can do. And it's the biggest and most effective protest, I believe, that the American people can launch today. Is to take control of their food supply. Because we have people doing, and I'm not, you know, kind of the airy fairy type. Uh, I'm not for holding hands with everybody and let's sing kumbaya and give peace a chance and the whole world will change because we believed it in a dream, okay? I, I'm not that kind of guy. But I do know that some of the things that people like Monsanto are doing are absolutely criminal, what, we're, what they're doing to the food supply. They're genetically modifying the food supply, and they're also ruining the lives of farmers. I'll tell you a real quick story as I end this. There's a farm in, in Canada, and, and this farm has been in operation for generations. They produce and save their own seed. Monsanto planted crops in the area. The Monsanto crops cross-pollinated with the Canadian family's farm crops, all right? And their genetically modified crap infected this farm. Now, you would think that if anybody had a, a, a legal case, it would be this Canadian family who's been farming for generations whose seed stocks had been infected, as far as I'm concerned, by Monsanto. No, my friends. Monsanto sued them to shut down their seed bank because Monsanto said that their seed varieties were patented and that once the Monsanto seed pollinated their seed, it became their legal property under patent law. And guess what, folks? It went all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court and Monsanto won. And the family lost a portion of their farm because of this. That's what Monsanto's doing. 
Now, Monsanto can go around and sue every farmer out there sooner or later because when enough fields have Monsanto crops in them, cross-pollination is going to happen everywhere. That's a dangerous precedent. There's some legal action right now that may reverse this. I sure hope it does. But they can't stop you from growing a pepper in your backyard. There's no way. This is how we can stand up to one of the biggest corporations in the world that's committing one of the biggest evils on the planet, in my opinion. And uh, you'd be surprised, I guess, it's not Cheney and his buddies at Halliburton. It's uh, it's Bush and his buddies, Bush Sr. and his buddies over at Monsanto. And Cheney is actually on their one of their boards as well. Uh, Monsanto is, is, is probably far worse for the planet long-term than Halliburton will ever be. Something most people don't realize. There's not a lot you can do about Halliburton, folks. But you can take control of your food supply. And that means there is something you can do about a company like Monsanto. And it means there is something you can do about the fact that we're, you know, we're now importing more food than we produce. And we've become dependent on the rest of the world for our food supply. You can take it back. That's why gardening may be one of the most patriotic things that you can do. And it certainly can be one of the most revolutionary things that we can do collectively. Hope you've enjoyed today's show. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. You can scream and you can holler, it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent.